My good people, greetings. What is happening? What is going on? How are you feeling? Hope everything is going well in your world as we prepare for the unofficial final week of summer. That's right. A week from today will be Labor Day, so let us all bow our heads in silence. But let me uplift your spirits with a bunch of sports talk as you've come to the right place to listen to yours truly, Jay Reels, here on the Jay Reels Podcast. For my first-timers tuning in, thank you so much for downloading and listening to this content. I welcome you guys aboard. Hopefully you come back for many, many more. And for those who have been with me on this journey for now, 87 episodes. That's right, I'm just a baker's dozen away from 100. I welcome you guys back. It is a Monday, August the 26th in the year of our Lord, 2019. Here's what I have on tap for you guys. Andrew Luck, his sudden retirement on Saturday was shocking news to the sports world. But there were some people who actually were up in arms over it, which I I couldn't even wrap my head around. And still, two days later, I can't. I'm going to slay those detractors and get into, if I could, the mind of a one Andrew Luck as he goes off into the sunset at the tender age of 29. So his football life uh, comes to an end. I'll also talk about the U.S. Open, which is taking place right, pretty much right here in the backyard of Flushing, Queens, as the final Grand Slam of the tennis circuit begins here on a abs- really a chilly day here in New York, considering that it is late August, and right now I believe it's about 70 degrees, which is perfect, but again, it's still August, the dog days, uh, they're going out in a whimper here. So I'll uh, touch on that. College football season has kicked off. Miami and Florida played a game on Saturday night, but the full slate begins Starting on Thursday, we'll preview a little college football, but my comparison to college football these recent years, to me, are similar to recent NBA seasons, and I'll get into that. But right now, as we approach the final week of August, and the pennant races are heating up with about 30 to 32 games left, depending on what city and what team you root for, and I'll get to the Yankees as they pretty much demolished the Dodgers over the weekend. I understand they lost the middle game. And certainly had a golden opportunity that ninth inning. But the NL and AL wild cards are certainly sizzling right now at the moment. And if you're here in New York as a Met fan like I am, when you look at what took place the early part of the week, and remember we had this nine-game homestand that we were going to assess here today when we last talked about it on the pod just a week ago. The Mets knew that this schedule was certainly going to be a challenge considering that you had a bunch of playoff teams coming in, teams that are ahead of them in the wildcard chase, teams that are certainly well ahead of them in the standings, whether it's the NL East Braves, which we'll get to them in a minute, or the Dodgers coming in in the middle of September. But after these six games here, what we've learned from this Mets team, and I'm not going to go back to the whole trust and being sucked in and all that. I know I've mentioned that over the course of the last couple weeks because with this run that the Mets have been on, we certainly didn't think that there were going to be any meaningful games here late in August as we slowly but surely get to September. But when I look at these first six games of this homestand and after winning those three games against the Indians the way they did, especially the first two, now thanks to some defensive gaffes and blunders on the Indians' part, The Mets pretty much got those first two games in their back pocket and were lucky and fortunate. Was part of it riding that home wave of the previous homestand and how they beat the Washington Nationals and considering that they've performed well above what they have done at home than they've performed in the past? Absolutely. But winning those three games the way they did and with the Braves coming in, after playing the Braves just 10 days ago down in Atlanta, you were only thinking that Maybe, just maybe, there was an outside shot 
of the division. I certainly didn't think that way. I'm sure there were some Matt fans that were having their fingers crossed and thinking that they could put a little dent and put some payback to the Braves after the Braves won two out of three down in Atlanta just last week or really about a week and a half ago. So here we are after those three games against the Indians with the Braves coming in. And I said to myself that even if the Mets were to lose this series, if they were to lose two out of three to the Braves, you had a four and two start to this homestand going into the Cubs series. And the Cubs series obviously is looking enormous at the moment, considering where we are in the standings with them. I mean, funny of, I mean, to think we have to actually thank the Washington Nationals for what they did over the weekend, because if not, the Mets would be probably three, maybe four back. But what they did over the weekend, and there were some heroics. I know Jeff McNeil coming back from the IL, who didn't start in the game on Saturday, which was beyond me. I don't know why, after being on the show for 10 days, and you would think, despite Joe Panic, who's filled in admirably for McNeil since he was on the IL with that hamstring issue, but of course, we can't start him in a game that he's eligible to come back. But what he does is pinch hits late in the game, gets a hit, and then gets a hit later on. So I tell you, the stupid analytics and the sabermetrics and all that destroy the game to a certain extent. But with that said, I digress. But after losing that game Friday night the way they did, they lost in 14 innings, 2-1, to one, and it just left a bad taste in my mouth just knowing that this was going to be one of those weekends where this brave team who has done it time and time again to this Met franchise where they just rip your heart out. And I could go through all the litany of games. Forget about the 99 NLCS. We all know what happened then. Even 2001 after 9-11, Armando Benitez being snake bitten by Brian Jordan and then down in Atlanta. I just It goes on and on. And this was just another indication that this Met team, despite the strides that they made, certainly have not got to the point where can you take this team seriously? Yes. But can you take this team seriously enough to think that they'll have enough gas in the tank to push them through the schedule and into October? I don't think so. And I'm not trying to say that they had to go ahead and sweep the Braves because that wasn't going to happen. I'm not trying to say that they had to win two out of three, although that would have been nice. You're just asking to win one game to stabilize the homestand to four and two. So if by any chance you have a six and three homestand, which would have been phenomenal, because on average, that means you would have won at least each of the three series. Even if you did lose two out of three to the Braves, but if you happen to win two out of three against the Cubs, you have a 6-3 and three homestand. Now, as it is, you're going to have to bookend this homestand with two sweeps to go along with being swept in the middle of it in order for it to be successful. Because now with the Cubs coming in, and they're two games ahead in the wild card standings where the Cubs are the second spot in the National League. And the Washington Nationals, you could pretty much not even pencil them in. I would think you could pretty much sharpie them in for that number one wild card spot because they have a four-game lead on the Cubs and currently a six-game lead on the Mets. Now, mind you, the Mets and Nats do play a week from today down in the nation's capital for three games. But it's only three, so the most they could do is just make up three games in the standings. But you would think that the Nationals will probably go on cruise control here and get the home field for the wild card come whenever that date is, October 2nd or 3rd. Off the top of my head, I do not know. So now if you're the Mets, looking at what happened here, this homestand, 
the crazy success of last Tuesday and Wednesday night. You had the rain-shortened game there on Thursday, but the Mets did prevail. Friday night, they lose a tough game in 14 innings. Saturday was a game where Pete Alonso ties the all-time single-season home run record for an individual player as he ties Todd Hundley and Carlos Beltran. And when they took the lead there at 5-4, the tough thing was that whenever you come back in a game, and they were down 4-2 at the time, he hits a three-run home into dead central, crowd is going crazy, electric atmosphere, which has pretty much been the case over the last two homestands. And then for the Braves to get up there in the top of the sixth inning and get the equalizer to tie the game, to me, that was, I'm not going to say a turning point, but whenever you put up a crooked number, you want to come back in the top of the inning or the bottom of the inning, depending on where you're at, home or away, to secure a zero because then you can get that momentum back. And it seems as if the Braves were able to stabilize it then, and then it wasn't until later on in the game when they got the hit by Acuna, which led to two runs, really one run. J.D. Davis had brain lock where he just took a sweet time and throwing the ball into the infield, and then Billy Hamilton scores. And then Freddie Freeman tacks on a home run later on where Edwin Diaz, front and center, there he goes again. Now he gets pulled off the mound, possible injury. Don't know what's going to be his status moving forward, but you could see the way Mickey Calloway's managing these games that he does not want to put Edwin Diaz in any type of pressure spot. He's just hoping that Seth Lugo has enough, enough rest between these games so he could go ahead and try to either close or give him two innings whenever the team needs it. And as I've said before, this situation with Diaz is not going to get any better. He's going to have to perform. He's going to have to be put in these games, whether it's on the road, up 3-2 in the ninth inning, or whatever it is. Unless Lugo is fit to perform that night, and he's ready to go to get either a three-out save, four-out, or even six-out save, on nights where he can't go, it's going to have to be Edwin Diaz. And I get Justin Wilson, who's done very well here, especially in the second half. But Diaz, unless the you're only going to see him pretty much if the game is out of line. And it's sad because here was the main guy that you brought in this trade from Seattle, not to rehash that whole scenario, but he's going to have to perform here at some point. And does Mickey Calloway and company have enough trust and enough gumption to put him in there in a big spot? Now, granted, the game was what? 8-5 at the time when Freeman hit the home run. So, three-run lead. They figure, hey, let's throw him in there, see what he could do for one inning, try to regain his composure, his confidence, whatever it may be, and look what happened. He's getting booed off the mound. I get that the Mets fans frustrated and disgusted, but you know what? That's just typical fair-weather New York fans. That's right, I said it. Because you're not going to boo your own players. Could you be frustrated with them? Could you be unhappy with them? Absolutely. But the same guy you're going to boo today that down the stretch when you're going to really need him and then you're going to cheer him on, uh uh-uh, sorry. I don't want to hear, oh, I paid my money to, and I could do whatever I want. Yeah, you can, but to me, that's kind of productive. What is that going to do? So the Mets right now with the Cubs coming in, certainly going to have some good crowds, you would think. The Cubs who have not played well on the road, which bodes well for the Mets. And you're going to have Marcus Stroman, who had the hamstring issue. He's going to pitch the first game here tomorrow night. And then you're going to follow that up with Noah Syndergaard and Jacob DeGrom. So 
I think if you're a Met fan, you're still optimistic, you're still happy, you're still looking forward to these games because it's better to have this scenario than to be 20 games out and 15 out of the wild card and nothing to cheer for. But this is going to be a very interesting stretch for this Met team. Not only because they have the Cubs coming in, but they go to Philadelphia this weekend and that team is a half game ahead of them in the standings. And then from there, they go to the nation's capital and play to the Nationals before coming home after a day off to play, who else? The Philadelphia Phillies. So just when you thought that this stretch here was going to get any tougher, well, think again. And the Mets right here at this moment, they need to take this day off today, hopefully come back to the ballpark tomorrow, and just have that killer mentality to go ahead and try to see somehow, some way, and with the help of the Phillies losing this week when they're playing the Pirates, but maybe somehow, some way, if they can get just two out of three and, dare I say, a sweep, believe it or not, they could be going into that game against the Phillies on Friday, number two in the NL wildcard standings as of, what would that be, August 30th. It's right there for the taking. No excuses. This team who's, let's face it, it's overachieved here over the last 30-some-odd games, 40 games now. And you would think with the way the staff is lined up, now, of course, you're not going to get Syndergaard and Jacob over the weekend in Philadelphia, but it doesn't matter. you got to play the teams when they play them and the pitching matchups, whether they favor you or not, so what? And I know that Steven Matz, who, you know, he pitched well yesterday. Josh Donaldson got him. I mean, he's killed the Mets all year. Jeez. Just when people thought Josh Donaldson's career was done after his injuries in Toronto, think again. But Steven Matz, who is just awful in Philadelphia, and I know the Mets fans are going to be holding their breaths when he steps to the rubber there that night down in Philadelphia, which will be, boy, I guess pitching Saturday night or afternoon, whatever the game is. But one game at a time, right now with the Cubs coming in, you just hope that they could right in the ship, get back in their winning ways, and then take whatever momentum that they can from these upcoming three games, win two out of three, and then go to Philadelphia against a team that, let's face it, you have not beaten pretty much all year. You're 4-9 against them. And think 5-11 and against the Braves. So if the Mets don't make the postseason, they're going to look at the performance against those two teams. Meanwhile, against the Nationals, now get this, can't make it up. They're 10-6. and So they have to improve here against the Phillies to go down there to the city of brotherly love over the weekend. But first things first, you have the Cubs coming up, and I just hope the Mets get two out of three. You get two out of three, you're five and four homestand, right. After going 3-0, and you don't want to sign for that, but you certainly don't want to lose the series because if you lose the series, that means you lose a game in the standings to the Cubs, and who knows what the Phillies are going to do. They're going to play the Pirates, who swept the Reds, big whoop, but... The Pirates, who lost to the Phillies just last week when they uh, played against them, or two weeks ago, because the Nationals played the Pirates last week, and we see you know what the Nats have done as they put themselves in great position after sweeping the Cubs over the weekend and killing the Pirates. So here we go. Like Bob Murphy, the old announcer, the Met announcer from yesteryear, once said, fasten your seatbelts. Because if you thought that this pennant race and this wild card race was interesting. Well, it's going to go to another level this week. And then who knows what we're going to have come next week when we're on the podcast. And that's what makes us thrilling. That's why I love to do what I do. 
And we're going to see front and center what's going to take place with City Field and their crowds and then having to go on the road to Philly and Washington. These next six to nine days are certainly going to be telling as to where this team's going to go. I truly believe that. And I get that the Phillies on the back end when they come home. But first things first, these nine games right here, or even I should say these six games, they, they mean the world to the Mets. These two teams are ahead of them in the standings. These two teams, they need to beat. If they want to get to the postseason, they have to win these games. That's all there is to it. So we'll certainly keep our eyes on that. Yeah, the National League is just, I tell you, although the American League has certainly picked up a little bit as far as the wild card is concerned, but the National League is just one big jumbled mess. Now, I did say the Nationals have certainly put a little distance considering the week that they had. And like I said earlier, they did a favor for the Met fan by sweeping the Cubs over the weekend at Wrigley. I think it was the first time they actually swept a series in Wrigley going back to 2005, if I'm not mistaken. I think it's been 14 years since they've done that. So with the Mets in the forefront of all this, but you got to look at the Cubs, and the Cubs have a very interesting week when it comes to their schedule is concerned. Cubs have the Mets, as we've talked about, and then they go home to play Milwaukee for three where the Brewers have been sliding a little bit. They're going to host the Cardinals before going to Chicago. And who knows what's going to happen here with the Brewers. Brewers are now four and a half games back in the Central also. You want to put that in the mix as far as the division is concerned. The Cubs are two and a half back at the Cardinals. Cardinals have played well. They swept Colorado. They seem like they haven't lost in a month. So kudos to them and what they've done. The Phillies, as I said earlier, they're going to host Pittsburgh and then the Mets at the end of the week. And then Washington has just a cake week. They're playing Baltimore for two and then Miami, all those games at home. Like I said earlier, not to say that they could put their feet up, but for all intents and purposes, they have another 5-0, and 4-1 type week. And then Scherzer's back in the mix too, so certainly got to keep that in mind. I think Scherzer's pitching, I think he's pitching tomorrow, which means that he'll probably pitch Monday against the Mets. Because those two games against Baltimore, they're off today and they're off Thursday. So if the rotation goes as follows, I don't think he's going to pitch Sunday against Miami. And even if he was scheduled to pitch Sunday, I could see Davey Martinez, the manager of the Nationals, skipping his spot for one day so he could pitch on that Labor Day Monday against the Mets. There you go. There's your challenge there, Mets fans. And the National League, we forget about the divisions. The Braves would have a six-game lead on the Nats. I don't know how many games they have left. Maybe they do have six more. I got to uh, look into that. But we can forget about divisions other than the NL Central. And we know about the AL Central where the Minnesota Twins got to give a shout out to my guy Jason Lalek who listens. He's actually in Minnesota. He's a big Twin fan. So uh, he's certainly happy with the way the Mets performed last week to sweep the Indians to help his cause out there. And they're continuing the master ball. I think they have, what is it, 251 home runs right now? Something like that. So they're 13 behind the Yankees' all-time record, which they just set last year. But the... AL, other than the Central, as far as the division is concerned, because the other two divisions, you can forget about it. Yankees, as we've talked about, we'll get to them in a minute. They have a nine-game lead on Tampa, and Houston has a nine-and-a-half game lead on Oakland. But the wild card there in the Central is really what's percolating. And as of, I think a couple weeks ago, it looked like it was just going to be Cleveland, and it was a battle between Oakland and Tampa. Well, guess what? Those three teams are separated by one game. Cleveland has a half-game lead on the... First wild 
card spot. So they have the home field if the season were to end today. But Tampa's just a half game behind them. And then Oakland's a half game behind Tampa. And interestingly enough, after three games in Detroit for the Indians, they go to Tampa. Or as a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, they go to Tampa. So they're on the road where the Indians and Rays will hook up this weekend down in the Trop, which should certainly be telling as far as what's going to happen with the wild card playoff positioning in the standings of concern. Tampa goes to Houston, so they have a very tough first part of the week before going home to host the Indians. So the baseball eyes, or I should say the baseball fan, will be looking at that series this weekend down in St. Petersburg. And then Oakland has a road trip where they go four to Kansas City and then three here in New York to play the Yankees over the weekend. And we saw what they did to the Yankees last week by sweeping them out of the Oakland Coliseum. And I'll segue that to the Yankees. And that was a tough start to their road trip. First time they've seen Oakland all year. Now in a big spot, you're never going to worry about the A's and the Yankees because the A's have not beaten the Yankees even going back to whether it was 2000 when the Yankees and A's played in the division series, whether it was 2001 when they were down 0-2 in the division series. How can we forget the Jeter flip play at the plate? That was that series. We could talk about the wild card game just last year. So it doesn't matter if you bring back Joe Rudy, Reggie Jackson, Gene Tennis, Raleigh Fingers, etc. The A's were certainly not going to beat the Yankees. But in the regular season, and especially out in Oakland, they certainly have their number. And they were able to sweep them. Jay Happ was Jay Happ. I mean, what could you say about you know some of the pitching performances? Not that he pitched terrible, but certainly did not pitch well enough for the Yankees to win. Gleyber Torres continues to master ball. He had two home runs in the final game. He also hit the one home run over the series against L.A., which we'll now segue to. And that was a scene and a half to behold out in L.A. As we all know, the reputation of the Dodger fan is one that comes into the third inning and leaves in the seventh, all because of the traffic in L.A. And the Dodger fan was certainly anticipating this series as you had your possible NL Cy Young winner for this year in 2019 in Hyunjin Ryu. But he was just awful. He probably pitched the worst game of the, of the year against the Yankees as he gives up home runs left and right. Aaron Judge, Gary Sanchez, a grand slam to Didi Gregorius. Didi tacks one on later on in the game in the ninth. Throwing Gleyber Torres, 10-2, off and running. And the Yankees were one game in this, I don't want to say crucial three-game series, but a very telling three-game series from the standpoint of it didn't get a lot of hype going into it. I get it's regular season, nobody's going to care. But because of what could happen down the road with these two organizations, and we know how storied they are, and I talked about this last week as I previewed it, but it just didn't seem to get a lot of pub. And I thought that it should have gotten more pub than it did. But then Saturday, you had the Yankees. Justin Turner hits a two-run homer. And then Judge hits one to make it 2-1. to one, And that was pretty much your score until the ninth inning where you had a little controversy on that one play where it was the, the double play ball where Gardner was out at second or supposedly was out at second. And then... Kenley Jansen, for whatever reason, he had his hands up to call timeout, but then Gleyber Torres crossed home plate. But they reviewed it. They looked at it. Both managers came out of the dugouts. They were wondering what's going on. It was a bit of a delay. But then it was ruled that the 
Runner at second, which was Brett Gardner, was actually safe. So they had to put Torres back to third. And then Kenley Jansen gets out of that. He strikes out Gary Sanchez. Then the game, and it ended up being 2-1. to one. So instead of being 2-2 or possibly even more and maybe extra innings, uh-uh, Torres goes back to third. Yankees do not score that equalizer, and they lose game two. And then last night, the Yankees, Aaron Judge again. I know DJ LeMahieu led off the game at a home run, then followed by Jock Peterson, but then the Yankees pretty much with their offense took over after that. They win 5-1. Judge hits a home run in every game of the series. You had uh, Domingo Herman pitch well, now 17 wins on the year. Clayton Kershaw, three runs, four hits, 12 strikeouts in seven innings, but of course, the three of the hits that he gives up are all big flies. And the Yankees win two out of three against the Dodgers. They now move up the coast, well up the coast to now play Seattle before getting a day off to come home to play the Oakland A's at home, as I mentioned earlier. And the Yankees, as I've said, I don't want to sound like a broken record here, but Yankees right now is just about their starting pitching. You're not going to worry about their bullpen too much because it seemed like Boone, he's done very well with his bullpen from a standpoint of not trying to overuse. You know, he closed without a Vino. I believe, than the game on uh, Saturday. And, of course, not that they had him close the game because, again, the Dodgers did win in the ninth inning. I'd have to double-check. I remember Adovino coming in late in the game and he was actually closing the game. So when the Yankees are looking to go into this final month to try to get all their ducks in a row, whether it is their starting pitching or to make sure that their bullpen stays fresh, has enough days off, this is the luxury you have by leading the, your, your division by nine games. And Tampa's not going to be a threat here. They only played the Yankees two more times. That's pretty much the last week of the season. So all you could say, Yankee fans, is keep marking off the calendar. Keep checking off those days. Pretty much from here on out, you're not going to have any series that's going to be worthwhile. And the only reason why I mentioned the Dodgers series because of the barometer and the, you know, the the team that you're playing is obviously of your caliber because we all know the top three teams in baseball are the Astros, Yankees, and Dodgers. However you want to order them, it's up to you. In fact, the Dodgers have the better record than the Astros and Yankees as it is today. But one thing that, to be certain, and one thing you have to keep an eye on, is that the Yankees, you do want to get the best record in the American League because that means that the Astros have to come through you to go to a World Series. And both teams are at 85 and 47 at the present moment. So I don't know what the schedule is down the stretch for both teams. I mean, Yankees, I can pretty much figure out. Astros, I don't know who they have. I believe they have Oakland coming into their building for four games because I was trying to look ahead for the wild cards, and I did see Oakland and Houston, but that's not until the middle of next month. So I'd have to take a peek at to, as to what schedule is a little bit more favorable as far as winning the American League regular season is concerned from a record standpoint. And... That's it, people. I mean, that's what you got here to catch you all up on baseball here for the up-to-the-minute analysis, breakdown of what the wild card and divisions and what's happening around baseball is concerned. Because other than that, you pretty much don't have anything else. Oh, one last thing I want to mention. I didn't say this last week on the podcast, but I overlooked it. My apologies to the Yankee fan out there. But this whole... Brett Gardner banging the roof of the dugout with his bat. And he got ejected in that game at the end of last week. I'm trying to think of the game off the top of my head. 
uh, let's see, they were at, well, anyway, I believe it was in Toronto, or one of these games. Well, I know Toronto, he got tossed there, and then, of course, later on, got tossed, I believe, in that uh, series at home. But here he is, he's banging the top of the dugout. I get that the manager, excuse me, the umpires, they are very familiar with the situation, knowing that instead of barking at the umpire or taking it underneath the tunnel, going toward the clubhouse to either hit a water cooler or a bat rack or whatever it may be. But here he is banging the top of the ceiling of the dugout. And I get that he probably shouldn't be thrown out, but the umpires don't have anything else better to do. But the bad thing about that is, is that he's done it before and he's bringing more attention to it by continuing to do that. And that's why he got ejected. And guess what? I think the umpires are right to do so. I know a second ago I said, ah, you know, if it was just random or one time he did it or it took him, he did it in July and then here it is late August, he's doing it again. And all right, whatever. But he's made a habit of doing this. And if you're going to make a habit of doing it where he's not going to showing up the umpire on the field and he could say, well, I'm in the dugout. Well, that's his way of spewing expletives or shouting at the umpires in the dugout, but he's doing it with his bat. And right, if you're going to bang it once or twice, that's fine. He's banging it like whatever, seven, eight, nine, ten times. So if the umpire sees that, and they know that's directed toward the umpire, and granted, I understand it's not on the playing field or it's not happening in the middle of the game, but guess what? Even if it's a situation where the pitch is thrown, and the umpire looks into the dugout and he sees Gardner wailing away at the dugout, at the top of the dugout, then what is he going to do? He's going to try to regulate that and shut it down. And I'm tired of the umpires, especially these young ones, the rookie ones, and even the Angel Hernandez's of the world. But for them to just not overlook that and for them to just kind of let it slide, I think would have been an unfair because you know Gardner's going to continue to do this again at some point. Maybe he won't do so now because of what took place there a couple of Sundays ago, but I, I thought it was smart for the umpires to do that. And I'm not saying that because I'm anti-Yankee. I'm not saying that because, aha, he deserved it. No. But because he's done it a few times, and I'm sure the umpires speak, not to say that, they're oh, we're going to target Brett Gardner, but... If Boone's going to come out of that dugout and he's going to start yelling and screaming and whatever, and then Gardner's going to be in the background, you know, banging on the top. I mean, please, what is that about? Uh, That's just my two cents on that. And I understand I'm kind of late to the game on that because it wasn't really that big of a deal. But then I thought about it and I said, you know what? Let me throw this out there. And uh, because who knows what this means down the road? What is it? If Gardner gets called out in third strikes in October, is he going to do that? Uh, Probably not. So... So that's what you have there. And uh, interesting how the baseball is going to ratchet up here as uh, we get to September. So definitely, guys, stay tuned to listen to more in the weeks to come. Now, I'm going to turn my attention to the NFL. And we just finished the third week of the preseason. Again, I can't get crazy with the third week of this preseason. I understand all the regulars have now played a series or played a half, whatever it may be, a quarter. As I said before, and I'll say it again. It's only the preseason is damaging the product on the field, especially for the first two or three weeks of the season. Now, I get it that it's a marathon, not a sprint. But when you have these teams 
hold back their regulars for the most part, whether it's Le'Veon Bell with the Jets, as Adam Gaze has come out and said that there was no way he was going to even sniff the field come preseason. You would think that this is going to be the beginning of the end for the NFL preseason as we know it. And not to say they're going to totally abolish it. They're certainly not going to do that. But I would think that there should just be two games where they play. And wait, hey, if you want to have the one game where they go all out, fine. And maybe the other game they play a half and then you find out the rest from your regulars, great. I understand the owners probably aren't going to do it. We all know it's a tough sell to the networks. It's a tough sell to even the fans because these are tickets that they have to buy that they're, they're meaningless, these games. Absolutely. And I know the football fan, they're chomping at the bit to watch football after a long offseason and summer is sick of watching baseball. Oh, I need football. That is not football. It's not. Is it watching the Pro Bowl? No, but it's like watching paint dry. But it's going to be interesting to see how they're going to look at this. And I'm talking about how they, meaning the Shield and the higher-ups of the NFL, because they certainly need to rethink this. To have a lot of the regulars play in these two games and don't play the two games and have 18 regular season games with the bye week. No. To me, that's dumb also. I understand that people from certain sectors will look at that and say, well, hey, if you expand to 18 weeks, that means the Super Bowl is going to be played on President's Weekend, which would be fantastic because then most everybody's off on that Monday. But from what I've read, that the NFL doesn't want that because if that's going to be a weekend where it's a holiday, people are going to be traveling. People aren't going to be watching the game. They're certainly going to be interested in other things, wherever they may be doing at that time. But the NFL, you could play the Super Bowl 3 in the morning in Siberia and people are going to watch it. That's what the NFL fails to understand. I mean, please, people watch the NFL draft and the ratings are great for that. So what do you think? The Super Bowl is going to be any less? But I would hope that they would, the higher-ups that is, they would look at this and say, we need to do something with this preseason schedule. We understand player safety. We get all that. They don't want these players getting injured. But what they fail to recognize is that come week one, week two, week three, when you're seeing sloppy play, when you're seeing a ton of offsides, when you're seeing a ton of holding penalties, when you're seeing a ton of false starts, when you see a delay of games, whatever it is, because the regulars haven't played. So this is why you've look at last year in those first two games, and I want to attribute it all to lack of playing time for these starters because the scores were high, 21-21, I believe that was 29-29. In the first two weeks of the season, you had two ties. Missed field goals, all this. What do you think that's from? Lack of reps from the starters. So if you have the starters perform and you have two preseason games then that's it where you go I'm not trying to say oh that's the way they should do it but guess what if you want to have continuity if you want to have an excellent product not just a good product because right you're going to see the good product come week three four five and so on but why do you think these teams are in a slumber come out week one week two whatever it may be and we're going to monitor that we'll see I'm not trying to say that all the games are going to be seven to three or all the games are going to be down to the final kick, you know, every game's going to be 20 to 17. But I bet you're going to see some games in there where you're going to see a ton of penalties, you're going to see blowouts, whatever it is. So in order to fix that, they got to do something with this preseason. So I'm sure NFL's taking notice. They need to do what's necessary in order for them to reshape this whole thing and have a better quality of play because when these starters aren't even stepping on the field 
during these four games. Why are we wasting time here? So that's uh, that situation. As far as the Andrew Luck retirement is concerned, uh, when I saw that, I was shocked. I-, I couldn't believe it. Here's a guy, number one pick 2012. We knew that this guy was going to be pretty much be the next best thing. A lot of people thought he was going to be can't miss. Certainly showed a lot of promise. He took his teams not only to the playoffs those first few years, but even to an AFC championship game, which was now the, def- the deflate gate game against the Pats. That was back in 2015. The 2014 season. And because of all the injuries that he's endured over the last, really the last four years after that 2016 season, he had the torn labrum in his throwing shoulder. He had the cartilage, the torn cartilage in his ribs. He also had a lacerated kidney. He had this issue. It looked like it was a calf injury, but then it became a high ankle sprain or some sort of high ankle injury for however that was or however that came to be. And kudos to him. And I want to make him my hero of the week. I know I usually save that for the end of the podcast, whatever, but I I couldn't really find anybody else. But he's a hero in this regard. That he was true to himself. He looked in the mirror and said, I wasn't going to go through this again considering what transpired a couple years back with his shoulder. He understood that he had to go through rehab. He had to take all the necessary steps in order for him to get back on the field to the game that he loved. But guess what? He didn't love it anymore. He didn't want to go through another rigorous training schedule, rehab schedule, to get himself back to as close as he could possibly be to 100% and then have to take another setback. And we all know he's a pocket quarterback. He's not a mobile quarterback. He's a big guy. But all it takes for him to scramble out one direction to try to elude a pass rusher, re-aggravates that sucker, God forbid he tears it, or whatever it may be, and then he's back at ground zero. And I love this press conference. He was very candid, obviously emotional. He did state that he wasn't going to go through this again if his life depended on it, and he stuck true to his word. What's going to happen after a year being off? Is he going to get that itch? Is he going to get that fever? Is he going to feel 100%? Is he going to think, hey, can I take another shot at it? If he does, then that's great. So now to the detractors of all this, because I'm sure that the people who have killed him over the last 48 hours are going to be the ones waiting for him if he does come out of retirement. I understand that's a story for another time, and it's hypothetical. We get that. But for the Doug Gottliebs of the world, the guy who has, I believe, a show on CBS Sports Network, for him to come out to make that comment about, oh, boy, that's as millennials millennial gets for him to make a decision like that. And... He's a guy that played college basketball. I mean, obviously he didn't amount to anything as far as from a professional standpoint. But whether he was just trying to ruffle some feathers or just to get clickbait responses, and even though he defended it, I read an article, I believe, up in Boston. He was on with the guys at WEEI, the sports talk radio station up there, and he stood behind it. But at the same time, it was very tenuous at best. He made his points, but at the same time, he says, oh, I get that, I, the rehab and playing injured. Oh, which one is it? But then, you know, to hear these fans in Indianapolis booing him as he goes off the field, to have people post on social media. Now, of course, nobody's going to care about the, the average Joe or the keyboard gangster, however you want to call it. 
for them to say, oh, now my fantasy league, it's blocked. Please, you know how I feel about fantasy, and I'm not going to get into that because I'm going to offend a lot of people when it comes to that. But if you're going to be upset that you drafted Andrew Luck and that your whole season is ruined, then find something else to do. I mean, really, just shut it down, send your, get your money back, and find something else to do. I'm just going to leave it at that. But the fans in Indy to boo him like that, and then for a lot of these other people, oh, how are you just going to walk away from all that money? Oh, you know, what type of – football's a tough game. I guess he's not tough enough. Jeez, you know, how are you going to do that? You're going to leave your teammates high and dry and leave them flat two weeks before the season starts? Give me a break. The guy has been through enough. You think that – he shouldn't care what the public thinks. He shouldn't. It's his life. Listen, if you've been tossed, bossed, and flossed on a football field from here to kingdom come, I don't care how much money you pay, you're making. If you're sick and tired of having to get up at 8 in the morning to rehab for three hours or however long it is to rehab, to do whatever strength exercises, mobility exercises, so on and so forth, to have it do it all over again, I, I think you would certainly doubt yourself and say, I don't know if I can do this anymore. It's easy for the average Joe just to sit on his couch and watch these games and stuff his face with Doritos and think that he has the answer to every professional athlete, in particular football player on the planet. And listen, not that I've ever been in any of these athlete shoes. Yes, did I play sports once upon a time? Absolutely. But nowhere near a professional level. But you know what? If that person wants to get up and walk away and he can't do it anymore, fine. I know we talked about it briefly, not to delve into this, but the whole thing with Vontae Davis leaving at halftime, retiring, that's a different story. You know, you want to wait till the end of the game and if that's how you've been feeling for weeks and you want to admit that, fine. Listen, you want to give up whatever is left on your contract and just walk out, leave your shoulder pads and your cleats behind? Hey, he has the right to do that. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, he quit on his team, you know, week five, week two. I get it. But if his heart's not in anymore, then so be it. What makes that different than being in a marriage and you're unhappy, and you decide, you know, I can't do this anymore, I got to get a divorce. Oh, but you quit, you just walked out. Well, if you're unhappy and it's not suiting you, despite how much money you're making, then you know you got to respect that. In the case of Vontae Davis, I couldn't respect that because he walked out at halftime. I mean, geez, you know, can you wait another 30 minutes for the game to be over? But that's how these people are. These, These fans are fickle. These fans just think that, because of the fantasy teams and because they want to get in the brain of Andrew Luck. And all I got to say to him is kudos. And you're the hero of the week, my guy. Uh, that's all there is to it. And if he does come back next year or whenever he comes back, then you know what? So be it. Also, kudos to the Colts and Jim Irsay, the owner, for giving him whatever is left. I understand that it was a big gamble for them because of the money or whatever was going to be left. I think uh, $24 million he was owed this year, so he's getting that, I guess, and some other money, but it's more as a parting gift for everything that he did for the organization and trying to fight back and come back and play at a high level as healthy as he possibly could, but he just couldn't do it. I mean, what could you say? So, and the Indy fans, I mean, come on. That, that's just, that's as Bush League as it gets. And Jacoby Brissett, he's going to be the guy who's in charge and we're going to get to the NFL over-unders for a quick minute here. But their over-under number, I believe, was 9.5. Well, it dropped two games. I'm surprised he even dropped just two games. I thought it would be 6.5 at the most. 
But it's just it's just disgusting to hear the fans take. And I get maybe a lot of them are under thirty and you know they don't know their ass from the elbow. But it's just to me it's disheartening that with Doug Gottlieb's stance. You know Troy Aikman came out and took a shot at him and good for Troy. I mean he's a guy who's obviously had to retire because of concussions and we all know his resume. So yeah, it's just a shame that you know guys like that got to take shots. You know, Doug Gottlieb and to me that was just he didn't have to go there. But you know what? If he was trying to get attention or to get that clickbait content, well, he, he succeeded. And kudos to him. But now he's got to face the heat. And I'm sure he's facing it. And he's not doing too well from just based on what I read and what I shared with you before. So, so that's what you have there. Uh, real quick with the over-unders, which I uh, go through. And with the NFL season kicking off next Thursday, just 10 days away. Now, I probably won't post my NFL over and unders until that podcast. I'm planning to do an NFL podcast that Thursday. Or I'll probably do it Wednesday night, so it'll be up on the website, jreels.com, of course, uh, that Thursday. But the NFL over unders, Vegas comes out with the odds or comes out with what are the over under win totals for each team in the NFL. And pretty much what I will do is pick six teams, whether they're three overs, three unders, four and two. Uh, it all depends, but. Right now, the team with the most wins that Vegas thinks uh, that the team is going to have, or the highest, I should say, is New England. So that's 11 games. Underneath that, you have KC, the Rams, and New Orleans at 10.5, the Chargers at 10. Then you have just everybody lumped in at 9, whether it's the Bears, the Browns, believe it or not, the Packers, Steelers, Vikings, Cowboys, and then you got a bunch of eight and a halfs at Atlanta, Baltimore, Seattle, Houston, and then eights, Tennessee, San Francisco, Jacksonville, Carolina. Jets are seven and a half, as well as Arizona, Denver and Buffalo, seven, Detroit, Tampa, six and a half, Washington, Oakland, six, Giants, Cincinnati at six. And believe it or not, the lowest number on here was the Miami Dolphins, four and a half. If somebody would ask me, who do you think would have the lowest number as far as overrun is concerned? I would have said Arizona. I mean, if they're going to start Kyler Murray there, Cliff Kingsbury, understand the ceiling is high there and expectations, not necessarily for this year, but for the long term, are big. But I thought they would have the lowest number. And granted, it's five, so it's not that far off. But I was surprised Miami. I thought Miami would be five and a half, six. So I'm going to take a good look at these and come next Thursday, NFL preview. I'll give you my six teams and why they will either either be over or under for the 2019 season. So you'll definitely stay tuned for that. And uh, my baseball over-unders, uh, as a matter of fact, you know what? I'll throw those out. You know, I'll save that for next week because I already did the baseball. But as we uh, hit Labor Day next Monday, I will certainly share those and see where we're at here for the final month of the baseball season. As far as college football is concerned, you had the game Saturday night between Miami and Florida, which is certainly not a... A yearly occurrence, I believe in 2023 and 24, they're playing back-to-back years. But these are two teams that do not know each other too well, unlike Florida State and Florida and Miami and Florida State. But it was interesting to kick off the college football season with those two teams and the Hurricanes fall short of pulling the upset. Florida is ranked eighth in the country. The Hurricanes actually had a 2017 lead, but then uh, Florida made a big play 
there to make it 24-20. The quarterback rushed it into the end zone, but then crazy enough, with about four and a half minutes to go, I think his name is Franks, the quarterback of Florida. He throws a bad pick in his own territory. Miami intercepts it. They're, believe, at the Gator 25-yard line, and they couldn't even punch it in from there. They were stopped on a 4th and 12, and the Gators held off the Hurricanes there 24-20. But when you look at the top 10 overall, we all know Clemson right now is the odds-on number one favorite here in the country, followed by Alabama. Georgia, Oklahoma, then Ohio State, LSU, Michigan, Florida, Notre Dame, and Texas will round out the top 10. And here's what I'm going to say about college football. And at the top, when I said it's comparable to recent NBA seasons, it's almost as if the regular season doesn't even matter anymore. And I get with the college football playoff and the seeding there, you got it, you want to make it to the top four. But to me, it's, it's almost a foregone conclusion as to, as you know, which four teams are going to be there? Uh, obviously, Clemson and Bama are going to be there. I mean, what? unless Bama loses two games, and can you see them losing two games this year? No. Same for Clemson. Then Georgia and Oklahoma. Georgia usually will go into that final game, the SEC title, playing Alabama, and then either lose to them and make it to the final four, or somehow, some way, sneak in and then end up losing in that first game. And the same for Oklahoma, as they've been there. Now, Notre Dame, of course, made it in there last year. But it just seems to me that those four teams, whomever they, those top four teams will be, chances are you're going to see them play in that playoff, which is usually around New Year's Eve or somewhere around that time or January 1st, whenever that is. Now, could Michigan finally get over the hump here and make it to that Final Four? Jim Harbaugh, for everything that we've talked about over the years, well, especially in particular last year on the podcast. He, first of all, he's got to beat Ohio State. And if he can't beat Ohio State, then chances are he's not going to go to the game. So that's number one. Ohio State's ranked fifth. They're always going to be a tough out. But they stubbed their toe in like the weirdest places. I think last year they lose to Purdue. They got bombed against Purdue. Florida, do even after beating Miami, you know, they're going to have a long road. Notre Dame, let's see if they could have the same success they did last year. And to me, to, like I said, compared to the NBA of the last few seasons, it was either Cleveland, Golden State, or maybe Houston who won an NBA final. Uh, Notwithstanding this past year, because obviously Cleveland, they were nowhere to be found. But in the LeBron years in Cleveland, the second go-around, there was two or three, ti- two or three teams that were going to win the title. And I feel the same in college football. And we get it. it's all about recruiting. We get about we know who the top schools are. We know who are the champions of recent vintage. We get that. But even if you get some dark horse team, you know, in years past, the, the TCU's of the world, you know, they were never going to get there. They were never going to play for a national title because we all know it's going to be the big bowl teams and the whole FBS. What the computer's going to spit out as far as strength of schedule, records, everything. So. To me, that's why the college football season is boring. And that's why being in New York with all the other pro sports, it's never resonated with me the way any of the other sports would. And the same for college basketball, but we're not talking about college basketball. So I know the college football family look at me as, Jay Reels, what are you talking about? College football is the best, especially down in the South. Oh, we get that. We know SEC is the top conference in the country. And I understand the people in the Big Ten, they're going to say, no, nope, we're better. 
And the Big 12, oh, we get all that. Even Pac-12 out there, they're going to say, oh, our football's better. Here in New York, there's no college football, none. But I'll be here to monitor and take a look and see moving forward. And there's going to be plenty of weeks we're going to talk about. These first few weeks are going to be boring. I mean, we all know these games are going to be, other than what you're going to get your Notre Dame, Michigan, I guess, probably week two, week three. Because you always get them early on. So that's a game that everybody looks at in circles to see if Michigan could beat Notre Dame, etc. But this week you have uh, Oregon and Auburn as your ABC primetime Saturday night game. Sunday you have Houston and Oklahoma. And then Monday, Notre Dame and Louisville. So that's going to round out your college football schedule for this week as it raises the curtain on another season here, 2019. So I'm sure everybody's rejoicing, especially from the college football world, to know that the tailgate will begin somewhere on these campuses and these parking lots throughout the country starting this weekend. And even though it's a holiday weekend, but I'm sure for a lot of people, college football Saturday is a holiday for many. So that's what we have there. Uh, Lastly, to wrap up, the U.S. Open tennis taking place, Flushing Meadow, pretty much stone's throw from where I'm at. With the men's, who knows? Is it going to be one of the three guys, as we've talked about with Wimbledon? Is it going to be Nadal? Is it going to be Djokovic? Is it going to be Federer? Take your pick. If I had to take one, I would think it's going to be Djokovic. He's on a roll. He comes off that Wimbledon high. And he's to right now, he's the best men's player in the sport. He's ranked number one for a reason. And away we go. As far as the women's side, Naomi Osaka, who, remember, lost in the first round of Wimbledon, which is bad for her. So I'm sure she's going to be chomping at the bit to make a long run here. If I'm not mistaken, I should know this, but I believe she even won last year the U.S. Open. And I believe she's the first Asian woman to win a major Grand Slam tournament. So you got that to look forward to. Tonight, actually 7 o'clock, you have Serena going up against Maria Sharapova. Sharapova, we all know about her career and how she was obviously a promising star and certain things have come, you know, gone through her life that uh, she certainly hasn't gotten herself on track to the point where she's been as consistent and has had that impact in the women's side of tennis. So we'll see uh, how those two perform tonight. I don't know if it's, I believe it's at Arthur Ashe Stadium, so that's pretty much uh, center court. And that's pretty much going to be it. The weather here in New York is going to be phenomenal this week. I mean, it's going to be, I believe, mid-80s today. You would think it's mid-October. Because right now, I believe it's about 70 degrees, which is beautiful. I'm not knocking it by any stretch. But when you get into late August, you're thinking of you know 85 and humid. But that's not going to be the case. So uh, we'll certainly keep our eyes on what's going to happen there at the National Tennis Center over in Queens over the course of the next two weeks. And in the NBA, as I said last week, they did sign Dwight Howard. Well, the Lakers, that is. So he signs that deal where DeMarcus Cousins goes down with the ACL. Dwight Howard comes in, one-year deal, but with a caveat, meaning that if he does any type of disruption becomes some sort of virus to the team, teammates, the ball club, whatever it may be, he is gone, out. So, and good. It's just a shame that Dwight Howard, it's come to this for his career, that he's become that type of guy. And as I chronicled last week, for everything that he did at the beginning of his career and looked like he was on to on his way to a Hall of Fame career, in my eyes, and we understand it's the James Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. It's not the NBA Hall of Fame. So even if it's the James Naismith Hall of Fame, he doesn't deserve to be in there, if you ask me. Sorry, that's just, I'm a hard mark when it comes to that. So Dwight Howard does sign there. 
We'll see what type of impact he has. He's pretty much going to be there to rebound and block. So Laker fans, I'm sure you're probably sighing at the thought of it, but what are you going to do? There's your replacement for DeMarcus Cousins for the upcoming season. And also Karis LeVert signs uh, three years, $52.5 million. The reason why I throw that in the mix is because now he was a big part of that team last year, getting toward the end of his rookie contract. It won't take into effect until next year, the three years. So obviously the Brooklyn Nets doing big things and trying to prepare for a little run here with Kyrie Irving in the mix and, of course, Kevin Durant rehabbing from the torn Achilles that he suffered in the NBA Finals. And that's pretty much it, people. Uh, I told you who my hero of the week was, and that was Andrew Luck. It's pretty much always a decision and stepping down when he was true to himself. But my zero of the week, and I understand this may be a little lame, but this is, it was just awful to watch over the weekend. Who at Majestic designed these players' weekend uniforms? Uh, I, I couldn't believe it. I didn't even know what I was watching half the time. You know, when I see the Aaron Judge hit all those home runs at Dodger Stadium over the weekend, he's wearing this full black uniform. I mean, it might as well look like Michael Myers standing in the box without the mask. And I understand people were laughing at the home uniforms, the white. It looked like everybody was coming off of a good humor ice cream truck. Uh, why didn't they go back to the old ones where they had the, for instance, if a Met fan, you had the blue top, but the sleeves are orange, and you had whatever the cap was. I believe it was blue with the orange bill, whatever it is. That's fine. Stick to the colors. Same with the Yankees. You have the, the uniform blue, whatever, that navy blue, and then you have the sleeves gray. And you have names and numbers on the back that you could read. Whomever designed that, and I don't know who bought those. If I ever see one of those in the street, I'm going to look at that person and say, what possessed you to purchase that? Because those were just hideous and certainly gave me an eyesore. And I was watching it on the set and I wish I could have erased it. Because it's not as if one of the teams or two of the teams or a handful of teams had it. Every team had it. I couldn't even make out half of these guys. So that was a disgrace. So whomever did that, that was just god-awful. So they're the zeros of the week. And that is it for this week's edition of the J-Rules Podcast. So people, I hope you enjoyed that. Obviously, lots more to come. The Sports Dead Zone is finally put to rest here. That's right. We went through the two Sports Dead Zones, the one that took place in the winter after the Super Bowl and before, pretty much March Madness. And then now from the NBA Finals or NBA Draft up until this week, where college football kicks off, you also have the NFL, which is 10 days away. Now we can start focusing and honing in on previewing the NFL, taking a greater look at the landscape, which we're going to do next Thursday. So keep in mind for that. And I'm looking to get a guest on. So yes, you want to be posted. All you have to do is just go to any of my social media accounts, whether it's JReels on Instagram, JReels1, just the number on Twitter. Also, my Facebook fan page, the JReels Podcast. You definitely want to check those sites to see what's going to take place, not only with the podcast, but any upcoming guests. Obviously, it's not easy this time of year, even with the writers, because they're always traveling. They're always on the move. And just to get them on the phone for 30 minutes, it seems like it's just too much time for them. So I'm doing what I can to see if I could do that. But certainly keep yourself posted there. If you want to send me any questions, comments, criticism, praise, you could do so at those aforementioned social media platforms or at the Podcast at gmail.com. Please feel free to do so. And then lastly, as I say each and every week, if you haven't subscribed or left a rating or posted a review, I implore you to do so. If you can, on any of the 
platforms that you listen to your podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spreaker, Stitcher, Spotify, Luminary, iHeartRadio. I'm on all those people. That's right. So even if on Spotify, you could connect me with one of your playlists or whatever. So if you're sick and tired of listening to music and you want to hear my voice and babble about sports for an hour, you could do so uh, on Spotify or iHeartRadio, any of those platforms. Because again, what that's going to do is just going to increase the visibility of all the other sports podcasts and even just general podcasts that are out there. And we all know there's a ton of them. And all that will do with your participation is just going to generate interest for those as far as guests are concerned because of the visibility and hopefully to bring on those bloggers, writers, former athletes, current athletes, broadcasters, whoever it may be, as I touch everything that's going on in the world, the diamond, the world, the ice, the world, the gridiron, the world, the hardwood, the golf course, racetrack, tennis court, you name it. From my lips to your ears, from my heart to your soul, from where I am to wherever you are, the j podcast always comes correct, direct, and in full effect. From the South Bronx, the South Beast, the South Central, the South Pacific, and all points beyond, peace, love, and God bless everybody. And until next time on the j podcast, on the flip, baby.